You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Well, we're back. Like that lingering smell on the bottom of your shoe when you stepped in dog shit. The anarchist world this week is back to entertain you. Well, we don't do the entertainment. The world does the entertainment. I just bring the entertainment to you. If you wonder what anarchism is all about, Anarchos without rulers. It's it's the uh, struggle to create a society without rulers. Going back to first principles, what gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So what's the anarchist struggle? The anarchist struggle is to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good for each and every one of us and to involve as many people as possible in the decision-making processes which affect them. That's the anarchist struggle. So if you're involved in those struggles... Well, whether you call yourself an anarchist or not is irrelevant. What is relevant is the fact that you are involved in that struggle. Now, I'm sure a lot of our older listeners would be familiar with Mr Barry McKenzie, the com- uh, 70s comedian, you know, the cringing Australian. And uh, I really used to love his Technicolor yawn. And we're going to try to get a picture of Barry doing his Technicolor yawn. Because I'll tell you what, I am sick and tired of people talking about freedom or a pathway to freedom. Sick and tired of it. Are they talking about freedom? Or are they talking about going back to normal? Are they talking about enshrining rights in the Australian Constitution, so successive state and federal governments have issues regarding removing those rights? No. Are they talking about freedom from want? No. Are they talking about creating a society where people are involved in the decision-making process or we move from a representative, so-called representative democracy where you give somebody a signed blank cheque for three to four years to make decisions for you without the ability to recall them in between elections if they don't actually honour one of their promises? Or are they talking about something different, you know, a more direct form of democracy? No. They're talking about, you know, being able to go to a restaurant, being able to walk down the street, been able to buy shit in a shop. And the list, this, this is not freedom. It's 
not freedom. It's the pathway to refer, returning back to normal. And do you want it returned back to normal? Do you want after two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the restrictions involved in it in order to drag ourselves out of it, do you want to go back to normal? Do you want to go back to the situation where the rich get richer, where governments become more powerful, where, where corporations, unaccountable corporations, set the political, social, cultural norms do you want to go back to the situation where you've got billionaires manipulating the parliamentary system to ensure they continue to rake in the cash? Do you want to go back to the situation which we see today where housing prices have exploded, rents have exploded, although there's been no migration in the last 18 months to talk about? Do we want to go back to the situation where public housing has basically been the concept of public housing is basically expunged from human memory. Do you want to go back to the situation we saw over the last 30 to 40 years during the globalisation, corporatisation, privatisation and deregulation era where the return to investors has increased by 100% while wages have remained static? Conditions have been removed. Unions have basically been outlawed. Strikes have been outlawed, except during a very limited enterprise bargaining agreement period, and even then they can be outlawed by the so-called Fair Work Commission. Do we really want to go back to that? Because that's what people are talking about when they're talking about pathway to freedom. They're not talking about making fundamental, radical changes to the constitutional arrangements to the economics which dominate, uh, you know, capitalism, the economic system, which economic philosophy, which dominates our current situation. So excuse me when I see the word freedom used in this context. Excuse my technicolour yawn over the microphone. I'm going to have to put up with it. Unfortunately, you don't smell it, but I will because it's just an extraordinary misreading of the concept of freedom. Extraordinary. And to see so many people sucked into that uh, vortex is really not only worrying, it's laughable. Totally laughable. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. Look, we're going to do a little bit of economic shit today, so you may want to listen, you may not. I mean, nobody forces you to listen to the Anarchist World this week. I know people across Australia listen, listen to this program, courtesy of the Community Radio Network, you know, radio stations across every state and territory in this country. I know. I assume you listen to the Anarchist World this week because possibly the analysis we give here is not the type of analysis you normally hear everywhere else. I mean, we deal with facts. We don't deal with myths and fairies, conspiracies. That's not my, my scene. And if that's your scene, I'm sure you could go back to the internet and you can find something really interesting to get you going. But what I want to talk about 
Well, the first thing I want to talk about today is post-scarcity economics. You like the word? Post-scarcity economics. But Joe, I hear you say, we live in a period of abundance. Well, you know, I keep talking about capitalism every week. Not that anybody listens, but, or takes note, maybe people listen but take note, but, you know, capitalism is a very simple concept. It's based on the concept of private investment for private profit. Not everybody has a disposable income to be an, an investor, but 8% of Australians do have disposable income to make them investors and they can use this country's investment-friendly laws to enrich themselves at the expense of everybody else. That's private investment for private profit. That's what capitalism is. Now, capitalism works best in a period of abundance. Whether that abundance is related to natural resources, whether that abundance is related to conquest and colonisation, whether that abundance have we seen in the past, with say if the Roman Empire is related to the British Empire, slavery, whether that abundance is related to the 21st century Mode of slavery, wage slavery, is irrelevant. Capitalism works best in a period of abundance. But unfortunately for planet Earth, we can't all climb onto Elon Musk's uh, little spaceship, the 7.5 billion of us, so we can go and rape and destroy another planet somewhere in the uh, galaxy, if not the universe. We're stuck here on planet Earth and we have a, a number of problems which most people realise we have but unfortunately many of the National Party members in Parliament don't. But that's, that's a different story. We'll talk about that in a minute. So we're, we're moving from a period of abundance to scarcity. This is nothing new. I'm not talking about anything new. And this scarcity is based on a number of facts, unpalatable truths. One, planet Earth is a fixed entity. It's not going to get any bigger. What is on planet Earth, irrespective of technological and scientific innovation, is finite. The resources on the planet are finite. And then on top of that, We have increasing population growth. Currently it's 7.5 billion. Irrespective of your position on population growth, the fact is there are more mouths to feed and house and look after on planet Earth than at any time in human history. And this population will continue to increase, pandemic or no pandemic. And fourthly, and this is the real issue, well, it's one of the real issues, they're all real, one of the dominant issues that most people on Earth have realised, but not the National Party and sections of the Liberal Party, but that's another story, as I said before, is the fact is the fact that we have an economic system which is based on growth for growth's sake. If you don't make a profit in a capitalist universe, you cease to exist. And in order to make a profit... You don't worry about the environmental consequences, the human consequences, the political consequences, the cultural consequences. It's about making a buck. 
It's that simple. Capitalism is about making a buck irrespective of the consequence. So when you have an economic system dominating the planet, whether, whether they call themselves uh, communists or whether they call themselves socialists or capitalists or liberals or whatever, the fact is if you've got the same economic system dominating the planet whose major role is to exploit the human resources and the natural resources on the planet in order to enrich themselves, you've got a problem. So, do the underpinnings of capitalism, competition, corporatisation, deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, suitable in a post-scarcity economic framework? Well, obviously they're not. Because they, all they will be doing is accelerating the problems we now face. So we need to transition not just from fossil fuel capitalism, fossil fuel driven capitalism to green driven capitalism, but we need to, we need to change, transform radically in terms of the economic system and we do this in three ways one you limit the growth of private investment for private profit by breaking up corporations they need to be broken up into smaller units because they now dominate the marketplace and nobody's able to compete against them two you do this by providing seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives. Now, cooperatives and collectives make nobody rich, but they do provide for the people involved in those networks. And within a capitalist economy, the dilemma is that you can't get seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives. And three, we need the, for the state to become involved once again in providing essential services to the community, not handing over that responsibility to the private sector. Now, if that occurs, you've got three different economic systems competing against each other, which gives us the best chance of dealing with the problems which are thrown up by post-scarcity economic conditions. And if we're not willing to make that transition, and obviously we're not in Australia and most of the other parts of the world where we are not, then we are on that last train to hell. If you think it's a bit melodramatic, the great thing about being on the last train to hell is that there are people who are still selling us tickets like the National Party to get on that last train to hell. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscana. A few sites if you wish to uh, pursue some of these issues. Uh, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest YouTube channel. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest Facebook page. My personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscana or Toscana for the Public. Pipsy.net, anarchistmedia.org and the list goes on and on. Again, but... Look at the concept of post-scarcity economics. Interestingly, uh, we're doing a series currently with the Autonomous Administration in North and East Syria, which is a 
a group of people, about 5 million people, Kurds and Arabs, who are attempting to forge a new reality which takes into account the concept of post-scarcity economics. Now, obviously, this is an experiment in the middle of a war zone. On one side, they've got a hostile Turkish government which has invaded part of the autonomous administration and continues to send drones to indiscriminately kill and bomb people. On the other side, you've got a Syrian regime which is trying to flex its muscle. And uh, I think to the east, they have a uh, Kurdish kind of uh, feudal state. But that's a different story. So I am doing a series. It is being broadcast around the Community Radio Network. I'm doing a series with producer Kelly. And uh, it can be heard at 12 o'clock on Thursday. Uh, I think this Thursday will be Series 4. We hope to do a 10-part series. And what we're doing over the hour is actually looking at is looking at what these human beings are doing to address these issues. And this is not an easy situation for them. But we can learn a lot, and we need to learn a lot from what's happening in the autonomous administration of North and East Syria. Let's move on. Net Zero 2050, the Australian way. <laughs> you like that? The Australian way. Now, look, I don't care about the National Party. I don't really care. They can squabble as much as they like. The world's moving on. Things will change. I mean, fossil fuel capitalism is going to be taken over by green capitalism. I mean, green capitalism, which is based on centralisation. You centralise energy sources. You make huge solar farms, nuclear reactors, huge wind farms, which are owned by, you know, minimal number of corporations. So again, the world is held hostage to the corporate sector. I mean, that's what green capitalism is about. It's not about decentralising energy sources to ensure that nobody actually controls the basic necessity of human existence, which is access to energy, especially in a world where almost 70% of the population of 7.5 billion people live, you know, in a a few hundred uh, cities around the world. Australia has been a little bit hesitant, a little bit hesitant, and we kind kind of downplay our role in carbon emissions. Now, there are two ways to look at it. The first way is to look at it is we've got 25 million people living on the continent, and we're the fifth, sorry, the 15th, one five, the 15th biggest emitter of CO2 in the world. When you compare our population of 25 million to almost 1.1 billion people on the Indian subcontinent, or I think 1.2, and you look at the balance of CO2 emissions, you can actually see that we're punching above our weight. We love to punch about our weight, but more importantly, we love to actually you know, tap ourselves on the back when we punch up above our weight, you know, like the Olympics. Well, this is the Olympics of zero emissions. We're number 15. We could do better. We could do some more. And I assume with National Party help, we, we'll get to 10. But if you actually look at the amount of fossil fuels that we export, gas and coal, 
we've actually raced up to number five in the CO2 emissions stake. Now, a significant proportion of Australians, unlike when I first started on this journey in 1976 when we were talking about decentralised energy systems, self-managed decentralised energy systems, in order to get get rid of the centralised control that a small number of companies had over the uh, economic uh, welfare of the population as a whole, the fact is that it, you know when maybe we had 0.01% who were interested, there's an increasing number of Australians beginning to understand that greenhouse emissions is an issue. It has a profound impact on them and their children and grandchildren. They want to do something about it. But I was interested in a little bit of a survey which was done, not that you know, regarding Australians' attitudes to net zero emissions in 2050. I'm talking about, you know, that's what, 20 years, 30 years in the future, whatever it is. And the attitude is quite interesting because if it costs Australians $500 a year to address the problem, they're not interested. They are not interested as a group in addressing the problem because they think the cost of $500 a year to secure their children and their grandchildren's future is a high cost to pay. It's like the current National Party's, you know, um, dance of death. They know that their support doesn't lie in rural and regional Australia because rural and regional Australia understands climate change better than anybody else because they're trying to grow crops, grow animals in a changing environment. But most of the National Party support these days comes from the coal industry, especially in central Queensland and the Hunter region in New South Wales, which are you know large coal-producing centres. So the interesting thing is if Australians are asked to put their hands in their pockets to assist, I'm not talking about all Australians but those that have got disposable income, they're not interested. They are not interested in addressing climate change. And that's a real weakness in the culture of this country, in the political framework of this country, where we're willing... We're willing to let climate change get out of control because we're not willing to pay $500 extra a year in terms of limiting our consumption. It's not about putting your hand in your pocket, but actually making changes to your lifestyle that actually limit consumption, which decrease greenhouse emissions. And to a large degree... I think this debate is skewed in this manner because everybody's talking about money. Trillions of dollars to be made from new technology. Trillions of dollars, you know, not billions anymore, trillions to be made, you know, from hundreds of thousands of new jobs, blah, 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 blah. So the whole climate change debate is now changing from a debate about survival to about a debate about making money from the transition. 
I think people have forgotten that irrespective of whether you want to make money or not from the climate emergency, if you don't address the climate emergency, it will get to such a situation where the cost involved will not be able to be met. The human cost, social cost, environmental cost, monetary cost by society. I mean, this is a classical of example of the uh, situation we find ourselves in, a classical example of that old adage, save a penny, spend a pound. Save a penny, spend a pound. It's a little bit like living in a fire zone and uh, not taking out insurance and then once your house is burnt down, you think, hmm, sh- I should have considered that as an, an essential, you know, as an essential to take out insurance. It's the same thing. We're not willing to make the lifestyle changes needed to address the climate emergency if it costs us a few bucks. And that's the Australian way. It's always been the Australian way, you know. If it costs us a few bucks, we're not interested. But if some politician promises us a few dollars or some corporation, you know, has some competition, you know, that you, you know, you rub your scratchy ticket and win a prize, well, that's the Australian way, isn't it? Let's move on. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. Have you heard of the word inflation? Well, people as old as I have remember. We remember the 1980s, the early 1980s, when interest rates were 17.5%. Not credit card interest rates, which are currently 20 to 22%, although real interest rates are about 0.1%. Interest rates on a housing mortgage were 17.5%. Could you imagine if interest rates today were 10%? five times more than people are paying now who've got a mortgage, could you imagine how almost impossible it would be for people to service their mortgages? See, because most of Australia's so-called economic success has been based on the rapid escalation of housing costs. For example, I think I've told you this example before. In 1982... My late wife and my Ellen and myself and the banks bought us a nice little house in Richmond for the staggering price of $42,000. Now, that house was a dump. It was actually sitting on the ground. The actual pillars that kept it up had collapsed, but it was habitable, Okay. Now, we sold that house four or five years later because it was a dump, and we doubled the profit. It went from 42000 to about 80000 within four or five years. I saw that same house without a paint of colour, without change, you know, without any, doing any renovations, sell for $1.2 million dollars. And I assume if it went up for sale today, it would be at least $1.5 million. But this is not some mansion. This is just an ordinary three-bedroom, crappy, you know, timber house in inner city, Richmond in Melbourne. So that means the price from 
2000 to about 1.5 million means it's grown in value over by over 50 times. What's that? 5,000%. Now, wages haven't increased by 5,000%. It's lucky that if wages have doubled since 1982, maybe tripled if we're lucky. So what's got? What's all this reminiscing got to do with you? Well, inflation is beginning to rear its ugly head. Inflation basically means it costs you more and more and more to buy things. And when those things are essential like food, energy, and over 50% of the population are on fixed incomes of one sort or another, or and over 80% of the population are on fixed income or wages which haven't moved for years, what it means is at the end of the day you've got no disposable income, not less disposable income, but no disposable income. And inflation to a, a large degree happens, and again, you've got to remember these things happen periodically. You've got to look at history. Look at the 20s in Europe. See what happened. See how the collapse occurred. Look at the inflationary pressures. And as inflation increases, central banks panic and increase interest rates and to try to dampen down the economy and bring down the inflation rate. And as you do that, people go bankrupt. So currently, because of the easy money which is available, not to you, not to people like you and me, we don't get easy money, but the easy money which is available to the corporate sector, inflation is beginning to rise. And inflation is an exceptionally important issue for people on fixed income because there's a profound effect on their lifestyle and their ability to pay their rent, pay their mortgages, buy food, look after their kids, and the list goes on and on. So maybe this funny money that's been created out of nowhere, as it was in the 20s in the US and Europe, maybe this funny money trail is coming to an end and this little experiment we're told which could go on forever won't go on forever because we're headed for another global financial crisis. And if you think I'm kidding, when it happens, just remember, you first heard about it on the Anarchist World this week. So keep your eye out. When bond rates go up, inflation goes up, interest rates come up, irrespective of what the central bank does, because we're linked in to the world economy. Our central bank isn't independent of other central banks. It'll go up, interest rates will go up and down, depending on what is happening around the world, not what's actually happening here. So think about it. Are we on the precipice of a major collapse. Remember, nobody saw the 2007, or was it 2008 global financial crisis hit until it hit. I mean, everything looked hunky-dory. Profits were going up, mergers were growing up, easy money was available, the stock market was soaring. 2021, easy money available from the banks because of the uh, money that's been created by uh, central banks and governments around the world. But instead of giving it to the population at large or using that funny money to service infrastructure, it's given to banks who then lend it out. 
And the more money you borrow, the less interest you pay. And that, to a large degree, highlights what's happening here in Australia as I speak. As I speak. The cheap money that's been created that's out there is creating and funding a corporatisation frenzy. And what do I mean by a corporatisation frenzy? What we are seeing is large corporations full of bloated with easy money buying up smaller corporations and companies. Firming their grip on the world economy. Firming their grip on the Australian economy. So what we've seen is the bananisation of almost every aspect of existence. And what do I mean by the bananisations? I know you're all happy with bunnings. But the fact is... A large corporation like Bunnings, which is, I think it still belongs to West Farmers, I could be wrong there, but I still think it's part of the West Farmers um, portfolio, basically put hardwares around the country out of business and now dominates that particular field of human endeavour. And this corporatisation frenzy, which has been funded by cheap money, just yesterday... Yesterday, there was $12.5 billion of mergers in Australia. Not million, billion dollars of mergers. And as corporations get bigger, and that's the natural endpoint of a capitalist society, private investment for private profit, small fish are eaten by big fish, big fish are eaten by bigger fish, and bigger fish are eaten by whale sharks. That's the way, that's the nature of corporatisation. But what corporatisation does, and especially if it's corporatisation which dominates the parliamentary agenda, what it does, it destroys competition and allows a particular group to actually dominate not only the economy or various facets of the economy, but actually dominate the cultural, social and political processes in a country. So when you've got this corporatisation feeding frenzy where big companies are snapping up small companies and then you know uh, bigger companies are snapping up these big companies that have just snapped up these smaller companies, we run a very real risk of increasing inflation because they dominate the marketplace. There's no competition. They set prices to suit them, which will lead to an increase in interest rates, which will have a profound impact on all those Australians on fixed incomes, whether they're wage earners who've seen little wage growth in the last 40 years or whether they're people on fixed incomes on Social Security benefits or whether they're self-funded retirees who are relying on investment uh, vehicles which have minimal chance of uh, going bankrupt. They will all suffer, and they're all beginning to suffer. 
You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. As I said, we were going to concentrate on economics, but maybe we'll move on. Language is everything. Language is everything. That's the beauty, isn't it? And I think it's important that we listen carefully to what people who exercise power or are concentrating wealth are saying. Because language is everything. And now that the pandemic is behind us, nearly behind us, we're reverting back to the language of the past. Where during the pandemic, we're all in the same boat, we're all rowing. But now that the pandemic's nearly finished, a lot of the people who are rowing have now gone upstairs to uh, enjoy the champagne and the caviar and left the rest of the population rowing, as in the good old days. You like that? The good old days. So language is everything. I, I hear the words leaners and lifters, dull bludgers, work shy, welfare, customers, not citizens, customers. So all the old language is coming back, the language that is used to denigrate sections of the population which haven't benefited from the corporatisation revolution, those that have been paying the price for globalisation and corporatisation, they're now back in the firing line. They are the enemy. That means you are the enemy. The trade unionist is the criminal. The social security Beneficiary is a welfare bludger. Those people that want to pursue green solutions, which are not based on capitalism, you know, playing with the fairies at the bottom of the garden, and the list goes on and on. And it's only those sections of society which are making money at the expense of the rest of us who are the heroes and heroines of the 21st century those people pushing pieces of paper around been involved in speculation and exploitation are they heroes and heroines those people who have been given carte blanche to exploit this country's natural resources without giving anything or hardly anything to this country's first nations people and the rest of the community They're the heroes and heroines. When I heard that, uh, you know, when I hear stories regarding how wonderful philanthropists these people are, I begin to understand how terrible things really are. So language is everything. Now, there's a federal election coming up in March maybe May next year, depending on how the country opens up. Uh, Mr Morrison has got the privilege of uh, determining what the election date is. Now, they've cleared, the major parties have now cleared the uh, room of any major competition by increasing the number of people needed to register a federal political party from 500 to 1,500. So it means that a lot of people who like us, say public interest before corporate interest, who wanted to be involved in the federal election have now been left on the outer. We haven't been invited to the card table. 
we don't actually have enough money to actually sit at the card table to play the game of federal politics. But there is one group which is doing well. And I'm not talking about one nation. Their time has come and gone. I'm talking about a group which is basically there to ensure the National Party and the Liberal Party are re-elected at the next federal election. I'm talking about a group that is happy, happy to run campaigns on alternative facts and myths. And I'm talking about the Clive Palmer Electoral Trojan Horse, the UAP, the so-called United Australia Party, one of the most disunited parties in the Australia, which is fully funded by Mr Clive Palmer himself, who makes his money by exploiting this country's so-called natural resources, who wants to continue to exploit these resources irrespective of the climate emergency or no climate emergency, and in a last-ditch attempt to ensure that he continues to profit... from these resources he's been given exclusive rights to exploit, he set up this little liberal, pseudo-liberal party, which is there to bring in all those people out there who think that freedom is going to a restaurant. All those people listening who think that refusing to be vaccinated against COVID-19 is some type of heroic martyrdom stand. All those people who think that Mr Trump was a wonderful man, and there are hundreds of thousands, not millions of people in Australia who think that, to bring him into the Clive Palmer United Australia Party fold. And we saw this happen at the last election, the election It's a simple concept. Now, Mr Palmer is not interested in being elected in Parliament. When he was elected, uh, I think three years ago, he barely, I think he attended less than 50% of the parliamentary sessions because his business activities were more important to him. And the Senate team that he drew up kind of collapsed within six months. What he's interested in is seeing the Liberal National Party re-elected with the United Australia Party preferences. He doesn't want to be burdened by having independent thinkers in the Senate or people in the House of Representatives. His job is to channel votes to the Liberal National Party. And if you look at the United Australia Party's preference lists when they come out at the next election, you'll notice that in every electorate, the Liberal National Party will be preferenced above the ALP, although they say they're against both the Liberal and ALP. So now we are seeing a human being with lots of money 
made from exploiting this country's resources, now using that money to ensure that he can continue to exploit this country's resources and use them to amass his own personal fortune. Nothing wrong with that. But the tragedy is that when you've got money, this amount, the tragedy is nobody in the Labor Party or the Liberal National Party, especially the Liberal National Party, is willing to introduce legislation to limit the amount of personal wealth that an individual can put into a political party or a political movement they've created. There are rules and regulations, very lax, in terms of who could donate to what and how much. And these rules and regulations were put in not to uh, stop the uh, business and corporate sector from donating to the Liberal National Party. They were basically stopped, put in to stop the uh, trade union movement donating to the Australian Labor Party. But nobody's talking about legislation to curb the amount an individual can put into a political party that they've created. You know, it's all about branch stacking, it's all about this and that. But this is not branch stacking. This is all about using personal wealth to change the political direction of this country in order to ensure that those people who control the means of production, distribution, exchange, communication continue to control those means irrespective irrespective of the damage it does to society as a whole. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Just a little, little thing, just a little observation. Now, everybody's talking about a labour crisis. You like that? A labour crisis. You know why we've got a labour crisis? And people are talking about, let's double migration next year to 400,000. Few few issues here. One, we have sixty to 70,000 refugees and asylum seekers in this country waiting to be processed. The majority of them will be kicked out. Now, these are people with genuine reasons, the majority of cases, genuine reasons for wanting to come and live in Australia. These people would make good permanent residents and eventually good citizens. But no, we have to bring people in. So why do we need 400,000? Why do we have a labour shortage? Well, we have a labour shortage because wages are low. We have a labour shortage because certain industries, including the hospitality industry, agricultural industries, are addicted to cheap labour. Not only cheap labour, but cheap non-unionised labour. They're addicted to it. It's the only way they can make a profit, especially the franchises, as we saw, with many franchises in this country. And you've got to remember that most businesses you see today, most of the bigger businesses are franchises. And one of their biggest costs is labour costs. So in this country, we're addicted to cheap labour. And we have a labour shortage for a number of... We have a skill shortage and a labour shortage, two different shortages. And we have two shortages for one very good reason. We have a skill shortage because as a society we have not been willing to invest in young people. And when we talk about 
you know, youth and how wonderful we are. But we have not been able to, we have not wanted to invest because it costs money to train an apprentice. It's cheaper to bring somebody from overseas fully trained to do a job an apprentice can do in five or six years' time after they're fully trained. And that's been the Australian way. Steal other people's skilled labour, irrespective of how desperate the country you're stealing from, their labour from, is for skilled labour. And we want to do this again. Secondly, we need unskilled, cheap labour in this country in order to ensure the current economic model which supports the hospitality industry, the tourist industry, agriculture and sections of the manufacturing industry continue to function and continue to maximise profits. And for that you need migrants on temporary visas. Migrants who could be kicked out if they open their mouths. But not migrants in terms of offering people permanent residence, but in terms of offering them access to work. For example, we just heard just a few weeks ago, remember all this bullshit about, you know, we need agricultural workers to pick fruit, and obviously we're bringing people across from the Pacific Islands. Once all their costs were taken out, you know, the cost of the airfare, the cost of them having to stay in quarantine for 14 days, the medical costs, the cost of their accommodation, the cost of the food. Most Pacific Island workers are left with nine, maybe eight dollars an hour and then they've got to pay tax on top of that. Come on. We need a wholesale change in thinking about work in this society. Now, as the COVID-19 pandemic comes under control, things are happening. And as things are happening, it opens up the possibilities for activities that uh, the Anarchist Media Institute has been involved in for many, many years. The first one is the public housing issue. Now, public housing has been left at the altar. Nobody in government, nobody in the private sector, nobody in the charity sector, Nobody in the philanthropy sector, nobody in the media is interested in public housing. It's all about social housing. And social housing is an all-in phrase when I spoke about language which covers every type of non-corporate, well, and corporate, private investment in the housing market. So there's a few diehards still left, people involved in defending and extend public housing and... Uh, public housing, everybody's business in Victoria and other parts and other organisations around this country. A few diehards die left campaigning against public housing and we will be con continuing our campaign against public for public housing. We'll be continuing our campaign for public housing while everybody else is against public housing. We'll continue our vigils on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House because the Victorian government, the ALP government in Victoria, is the worst Australian government in terms of public housing. So hopefully the vigils will recommence soon as restrictions are lifted. Now, the West Papuan Rent Collective, as I said at the beginning, I said over the last few weeks, we have had a very difficult time in the last two years in terms of keeping that office open. 
and that office is instrumental in the West Papuan independence struggle. Now, put this date in your diary. On Sunday, the 5th of December at 1pm, at the West Papuan office, 838 in Collins Street, we'll be holding one of our regular face-to-face get-togethers of the Rent Collective and supporters and assorted other people who are interested, and then followed by our you know, um, speakers. So put that in your diary. And if you've got a bit of disposable income, I was looking for 20 new members for the Rent Collective. We've only got uh, 11 new members. We have another nine new members. I'd like to thank those 11 who have volunteered to keep the office going for another year. We're now in our seventh year. Hopefully we'll be able to go into our eighth year with your support. I'm looking for members for the West Papua Rent Collective. You can um, leave a message on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. But it'll be a great day, Sunday the 5th of December. The Eureka celebrations on the 3rd of December, that's a Friday, will will be happening. Uh, They will be modified. won't be the usual 16-hour extravaganza, but the dawn ceremony will occur. The gathering at Bakery Hill for the Eureka medal presentations will occur and the gathering at the cemetery to pay our respects to those who died on that day will occur and possibly a uh, late afternoon lunch in the park at Eureka Park. But keep an eye on what's going to happen there. And and, uh, the Francesco Commemoration Gathering at the Murchison Cemetery in regional Victoria will be occurring on Sunday the 14th of November at 11am. But I'll talk more about that in the next uh, few weeks. But we're back on the move. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is a podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can leave messages. Don't ring it. If you don't want to leave a message, there's no point. 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can email us at anarchist, uh, info at anarchistage at yahoo.com. You can email us at info at pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net. You can download an application form to join public interest before corporate interests, and we hope to be able to register as a as a Victorian-based political party in the next four to five months, we need another about 70 members. Give us a ring, download the application form from pipsy.net. And remember, the ball's back in your court. You can't say that you're uh, locked down anymore. Well, not till Friday. Things are opening up. We're going to have to live with the virus. That's the reality. Get involved. Hope to see you on the streets soon. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week. Listen in next week via the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.